Let me pray for us as we prepare uh, to explore God's word together. Lord God, we thank you for your immense love for us. We thank you that you are a God who speaks and that when you speak, it is powerful. And Father, we pray now as we open your word that you would powerfully work in our lives. We pray that by your spirit that you would pierce our hearts. We pray that by your spirit that we would see your son and in seeing him we would trust him and love him. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, it's worth having 1 Kings chapter 18 open, which is page 359, page 359 of the Bibles. And tonight we come to the second week of a four-week series that we're in uh, on 1 Kings. And really we're in these four weeks looking at 1 Kings 17 to 19. And we started that last week uh, in 1 Kings 17. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that the goal of this series is that the hope is that God would use this part of his word to raise the temperature of our passion for him, raise the temperature of our passion to follow him and his ways in our lives to be sure that his ways are worth following. Last week we took the first step in that in 1 Kings 17 and really what we were trying to work out in that chapter is can God's word be trusted when God speaks? Is he telling the truth? Because really if you're going to throw your passion behind something, if you're really going to throw your, everything that makes up who you are behind something, you need to be sure that it's worth that level of commitment. And we saw last week that when God speaks... He tells the truth. That was last week and really tonight we pick it up from there and we ask the logical next question. If we're sure God is telling the truth, then what does a life that knows that look like? What does it look like to follow God, to passionately follow him? That's what we're going to be thinking about tonight because I don't know about you, I think it's easy to be sure in our heads but then when it comes to actual life, to freeze. Uh, When it comes to moments where life doesn't turn out the way we were expecting or the way we planned, to freeze up when it comes to passionately following God. Let me tell you about a friend of mine. I told you about a friend of mine last week, Lawn Chair Larry. Now, I've never met Lawn Chair Larry if you were here last week, but I have met this guy. Uh, He's one of my best friends in the whole world and he's very similar to Lawn Chair Larry in lots of ways. His name is Scott. Uh, No doubt he actually listens to these MP3s on our website so he'll hear this and be very mad that I've told this story. But... uh, I, I love Scott. He's a, he's a great friend. He has been a great friend for many years. He's in ministry in South Africa at the moment. But one of the reasons I love him is that more than anything else, he's been uh, a great source of sermon illustrations uh, <laughs> over the years. Virtually any, any day in Scott's life is worth uh, retelling. But uh, let me tell you about one particular incident. We went, uh, we went camping a lot of times together over our teenage years and one particular trip, a sort of a three-day trip, on the first night we ended up camping on the top of a hill, really a cliff face, not a great spot to camp, but uh, that's where we ended up and uh, we set up the fire for the night and we were cooking uh, our dinner and uh, Scott's a bit of an outdoors man, or thinks he is anyway, and so he decided we didn't have enough firewood uh, to get us through dinner and then into the night and so he said, I'll go off and get some firewood. And so the rest of us sitting around uh, the, the campfire waiting for Scott. Ten minutes goes by, still no Scott. He's very enthusiastic about the outdoors, so we thought, oh, well, he's just getting plenty of wood. Twenty minutes go by, still no Scott. Half an hour and still no Scott. And by this stage, the conversation around the fire is growing quiet as we get more and more worried about him. 
And in the quietness, you can hear this faint voice in the distance calling out our names and it was Scott. We're thinking, what on earth is he doing? And so uh, we head just up the rise from where we camped, really to this cliff face. And it wasn't like a, a sort of a tourist lookout where you've got the sort of the safety fence and, and the sort of the lookout telescope. This was the middle of the bush, no fence. And uh, we get up the top and we're looking around for Scott and he's nowhere to be seen. And uh, the voice is a bit stronger but still quite faint. And then eventually it occurs to us that Scott's actually over the edge of the cliff. <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure if you've ever seen one of those cartoons where they've got those sort of the trees sticking out the side of the cliff and you've got the cartoon character hanging onto it. Well, that was Scott. <laughs> there he was, hanging on for his very life with his right arm gripping tightly to this branch sticking out of the cliff. And in his left arm, he's got the firewood. <laughs> and so he's, he's tightly holding... And it took us about 10 minutes to convince him, look, Scott, if we're going to help you, you're going to have to let go of the firewood. And he's going, no, this was my job, I'm focused. It's like, Scott, come on. And I, I don't know whether it was the shock of it or he's just a man uh, who sticks to the plan that he had, but eventually he let go of the firewood and uh, we were able to lift him up to safety. Now, every time I think of Scott, I think of that story and every time I think of that story, I think it's easy to laugh at him and think, what sort of idiot would hang on to firewood? <laughs> at a moment like that. But really, what we've started to see in 1 Kings is it's easy to do that in life, to be so sure to, that we want to go with God, that we want to trust him and yet we hang on to these other things thinking, no, 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 I need this other thing as well, even though it seems totally ridiculous, totally illogical. That's what we're going to think about tonight. What would it actually look like to passionately follow God, to, to grip hold of him more than anything else in this world? So if you haven't got it open, turn uh, 1 Kings 18 open, page 359 and we're going to see through this chapter what following God passionately really looks like. As we return to our story of Israel in Elijah's time, we're given our first glimpse of what life is like after God has said he would shut up the sky and there'd be no rain for three years. There'd be no rain until he spoke again. We've leapt forward three bleak years This nation has been in drought. Three years of no prosperity, no crops and really no life in the land. I'm not sure about you whether you can conjure up an image of what it would start to look like, this nation, after three years of drought but for me the image that keeps coming into my head is Australia really right right at this minute. Uh, Our country has been in, in drought for I think seven years, the worst drought in our history and uh, you see these uh, men, these grown farmers, these macho Australian countrymen who don't cry about anything, just broken down over it. You know, they see their crops, they see them growing and then they see them withered by yet another month of heatwave. Month after month like that. That is what Israel was like at this moment. Three miserable years. And the obvious question for a, for a nation that had started trusting Baal, remember that, that this, this sort of backup God had been brought into Israel, that they thought Baal was going to bring prosperity, he was the fertility God, he was the rain God. The obvious question is where is Baal? As one commentator put it at this point in the passage, the so-called fertility God seems to have a massive case of impotence. And so the Israelites are left in the grip of this severe drought with their new God, seemingly asleep and then comes a break do you see it there in the first couple of verses of chapter 18 a moment of sheer grace a change in the weather 
Have a look at the second half of verse 1. The Lord speaks to his man Elijah and he intends to speak to Israel. Elijah is to go before the king as he did at the start of chapter 17 and he is to tell the king that the drought of Yahweh's word is over and the drought of rain is over. He will send rain on the land. It's a great moment. And really at this point the passage flashes back to Israel and for the rest of the passage that we're going to think about tonight which is up to about verse 15, the story zooms in on two characters, King Ahab and his right-hand man Obadiah. And really what the passage does is it plays these two characters off each other to try and show us what it would actually look like to answer our question that we're thinking about tonight, to follow God passionately. It uses these two characters to contrast two different ways to live life. And I guess as we uh, move on, verse 3 onwards, the, the, sort of the image I want you to have in your head is, I'm not sure if you've ever seen one of those guys, I don't know whether it's a comedy act or a, or a magical act, it's sort of a bit of, a bit of both, one of those guys who spins plates he sort of comes out on stage and he's got this stick and he starts spinning a plate and he, he gets it going. Once it's steady, he, he gets another plate and he starts spinning that and he gets more and more plates until he's running around on stage trying to keep all these plates spinning so that none of them fall over. And that's the image I think we have here of these two men, Obadiah and Ahab, people with multiple commitments, multiple responsibilities, multiple allegiances, if you like, and they're trying to keep them all balanced. I suspect many of us are like that. Many responsibilities we have and we're trying to keep them all in balance. We're trying to keep them all from breaking. Have a look at these two men. The first one, verse 3, Obadiah. Very quickly in verse 3 we're told very, something very important about him. As I said, he's a man with split allegiances. Yes, he has a key job in the kingdom. He is the king's right-hand man in charge of the palace, the prime minister, if you like, as important as it gets. But there is another kingdom and another king to whom he is loyal to. And in fact, as far as this other king is concerned, the word loyalty is wrong. You can be loyal as a civil servant, and that's what he is, and as an employee is to an employer. You know, you're loyal, a loyal employee. But the word for his service, his commitment to this other king, is much stronger. You see it there in verse 3, in brackets, He is devoted to the Lord. He is bound to his God wholeheartedly. Not just loyal, he is devoted. A word that literally means to be in it, boots and all. In it, up to your neck. Heart and soul, he trusts the Lord, believes him. Totally sure, totally sure of God and his word. He is a follower of the Lord. And so there's our first main player, Obadiah. Two loyalties, but only one love, only one devotion. And then we have Ahab, verse 4, who stands in total contrast. And really, as soon as his wife enters the scene in verse 4, we see his split allegiance. On one hand, Ahab is the Lord's man, on the Lord's throne. Israel are Yahweh's people, And so Ahab, while he rules, he rules under Yahweh. And as such, he is bound to follow Yahweh's ways above all. But then on the other hand, he has bound himself to another, his wife Jezebel. And if you remember last week, Jezebel brought into the kingdom her own God. She follows Baal, not Yahweh. This pretend God, 
And as we saw in the last verses of chapter 16, this loyalty had won his heart. This was his devotion. His heart belonged to Jezebel and to her God and with that had come devastating consequences. Consequences, you might recall, that Ahab had decided were no big deal, they were trivial, didn't matter. But there's nothing trivial about them. Have a look at verse 4. The very ones who were supposed to bring God's word to his people, the prophets, were being killed. Do you see how far Ahab's heart has gone from the Lord? As he watched his wife order the systematic killing of Yahweh's servants, as he stood there and did nothing, it was clear where his heart was. How about you? When it comes to your spinning plates, when it comes to your commitments, which one has your heart? Your passion, which one wins out? If you were in that room and you're the man with the spinning plates on the stage and they're all about to fall, which one are you going to dive across the room to grab before it smashes on the ground? If you were to examine your life right now to take a snapshot of it, 2007, who or what has your heart? Because something or someone always does. Jesus says you cannot love two masters. One always wins out. And so test it. Now and in the coming week, test your actions and your words and your priorities because the Bible says it is no small thing if your heart is drifting from the Lord. But Obadiah's heart has remained strong with the Lord. His first love. Have a look at verse 4. Now as I said before, the thing that Obadiah is showing us is what it looks like to actually follow God, not only believe it in your head, but to have it change your life at great risk in an act of pure defiance he gathered up a hundred of these prophets that were being killed and he hid them in two caves and it was an ongoing decision to go the Lord's way rather than the king's way. You see he provided for them day after day food and water and like the widow last week here is another example of what passionate trust looks like. You see, when you trust God, you're not saying you believe a, a bunch of things about him like, like God is like gravity or something. No, to trust the Lord involves doing something. It involves walking, living a life of trust. Its heart beats. And that's what Elijah was doing last week. That's what the widow was doing in chapter 17. And that's what Obadiah is doing here. Underground, unobtrusive, but right at the heart of things. How about you? Does your certainty that God is telling the truth, that his word is true, does it have a heart? Does it have legs in the real world? Does it have legs outside of this room? Are you a risk taker for God? You know, I find it hard to be a risk taker for God and it's been made pretty easy for me. I'm surrounded by people who either trust God or are at least interested in it. But the majority of us tonight are in situations not unlike Obadiah's, in the heart of things, in offices, in work sites, in schools, in universities, in social groups, in a world that has long since left God's ways. They haven't gone to trust Baal, no, they choose other things, whether it be wealth or health or homes or happiness or reputation or promotion, whatever it is, That's where we live. And God says, I want you to be bold. I want you to trust me. 
To be sure his way is the way to go. You have many allegiances but only one love, one devotion. God wants you to take big risks for him where he's placed you because we live in a world, in homes, in offices, in families, in neighbourhoods that is desperate for risk takers like that. Desperate. What our world needs more than anything is for you to trust your God and to take risks for him. Risk takers change the world. They turn it upside down. Play it safe as well. They might change their home decor and backyard landscaping but that's about it. God wants a lot more for you than that. That's what this passage is pushing us on. Back to our story, verse 5. And again in verse 5 we get a picture of how desperate things have got for Israel. And it would have been a slow process. It wouldn't have happened straight away as the rain stopped. It would have been a slow decline, deliberate and constant. Until one day Israel would have woken up and realised that things were pretty far from okay, that they were in desperate trouble and there was nothing they could do about it. That's the picture of Ahab in verse 5. And I reckon our world is full of scenes like that. Slow decline, punctured by moments of reality where we realise things are not okay. Whether it be the slow creep of terrorism or the growing sense of powerlessness when it comes to things like climate change or maybe something closer to home, that that feeling of your life unravelling, of moving from being totally in control to feeling totally powerless. Growing up, uh, my grandfather was just a, just a hero, really. He was just this larger-than-life figure. Uh, huge, huge guy, hugely strong, physically, intellectually, you name it. He was just an amazing guy. I have a very deep respect for him. Every time I, I saw him, he seemed to be totally in control. Then last year, as, uh, as he's growing older and older, uh, he was just in his backyard. There's a, there's a hose just on the ground. And he tripped over as he would have like a hundred times before that. Any other time it would have just grazed his knee. But this time, for some bizarre reason, he tripped over in such a way that he ended up breaking his neck. He was rendered almost immovable. And when I saw my grandfather in hospital last year with this huge halo thing around his head and pins in it, it was a very different grandpa than I'd ever seen before. Gone was the powerful man. Gone was the man in control and he was a man totally afraid, totally powerless. Where do you go when your heart, your trust, your surety is in something else other than the Lord? Where do you go at a moment like that when someone else or something else has your trust? Well, that's where Ahab is at this moment and he misses the moment, the opportunity for rescue, Here at this dead end like Elijah reached last week with this this dead boy in his arms where Elijah cried out for God's help there is no cry from Ahab's lips. No, his security is elsewhere. Do you see what he does? Instead we have this tragic scene. He says to Obadiah, his right hand man, what we'll do is we'll stand back to back in the middle of Israel and we'll walk as far as we can in opposite directions in search of something, some sign of life, some water some growth, some good news somewhere. Well, that's the picture of Ahab. What would it look like if you trusted the Lord? What would it look like if your passion was to follow him? I suspect most people here tonight want to do just that. We want to follow God and we want to follow him passionately. I mean, if you're sure 
God is telling the truth when he says to you that he loves you, that he's forgiven you, that he's given you a hope that can never be taken away, then you want to follow him, don't you? But do you know what that involves? Do you know what we've signed up for? What the path ahead looks like? Well, what if you're not there yet tonight? What if you're someone who, who, who's come along tonight and you're still not at a point where you actually trust God, you haven't thrown your lot in with him? I reckon if that's you, then you want to know what the path ahead looks like. If you did throw your lot in, what would be involved? What's the payoff? What's the cost? Well, the verses from verse 7 onwards show us exactly that. What it would mean to follow him passionately like Obadiah, to be devoted. Verse 7, Obadiah goes off in this fruitless search and then in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the wilderness, comes this amazing moment. In the midst of this drought of water, of God's word, and I imagine of people like him, people who trust God, he sees this figure on the horizon and he realises that it's Elijah. How good is that moment? Here is one like him. Is it really you? He says, I can't believe it. He's so excited. But there's hardly time for long catch-ups or hugs or swapping stories. No, Elijah is on task. Remember the start of the chapter, Elijah has been given a mission by the Lord and now Obadiah is about to get swept up in it again. Obadiah must stop this pointless task he is involved in and instead he has to go to the king. The king, he says, because the king of the universe is about to speak to him through Elijah. And Obadiah knows instantly the cost involved in doing that. He knows what this mission will mean. His very life is at stake and he's afraid. Do you see why? Verses 10 to 12. You see, in these last three years, Ahab has searched everywhere for Elijah, this man who he thinks has brought all this on Israel. Everywhere he's looked, he's found nothing and now Obadiah knows that Elijah's very steps are guided by the Lord, that at any point God could command him to go somewhere else and off he'd go. I mean, how does he know Elijah's going to stay put long enough for him to go tell the king and he'll be there when he gets back? I mean, it's a legitimate question, isn't it? His life is at stake. Why would God want him to do it anyway? Has he done something wrong? Is it some sort of punishment, says Obadiah? And here in verse 9, I think we have the heart of the matter. If you want to know what following God will involve, then listen very carefully to how this plays out. You see his question in verse 9, what have I done wrong? Why would God do this? It's a very similar question to the one the widow asked in chapter 17, verse 18. Remember she asked why God would bring this man to shove her sin in her face. She knew why it had happened, because of her sin. But Obadiah has done nothing wrong. Nothing to deserve this. He, he cites his CV. He, he, tells, he tells Elijah what he's done for God. And there's no exaggeration. It's not like one of those CVs. If you're like me, when I was a sort of a teenager in university applying for jobs, you had a CV and you always sort of embellished it a little bit. Uh, I remember my very first job was working at a a squash centre and uh, early in the morning when the guys were coming in to play squash, I had to cook them toast. I'm not sure why, but I had to cook them toast. And all of a sudden on my CV, that became catering. (laughs) But there's no exaggeration for Obadiah, he doesn't say any more than the narrator has already told us in verses 3 and 4. It took great guts to do what he did. 
And it wasn't a one-off thing. Do you see what he says there? From youth he has been devoted to the Lord. That's his default position. All along he has gone God's way. He has risked his neck day after day for the Lord. Why this? Well, to understand that, I want to take you for a few moments to the New Testament, to the other reading we had tonight, Luke chapter 9, verse 57 to 62. And to see from this why following the Lord involves great cost. Here in this short passage in Luke 9, we have three potential followers of Jesus who come up to him. They're each told something very hard, but also something incredibly comforting. And really what this passage in Luke 9 tells us is it tells us two things. If you want to follow the Lord, if you want to know what that's going to involve, you need to know two things. Firstly, you need to know where he's going. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we have this moment where Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. That's his destination. That's where he's going. And if you look throughout Luke's Gospel, for instance, Luke 18, verse 31 to 33, you see why he is going there. He is going there to be arrested, to be tortured and to be killed. He is going to the cross. You see, to follow Jesus is to follow the path of the cross and so it's no surprise what is being asked of Obadiah here, I don't think. If you follow Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, you are following him on a costly path. You see, as we saw with Obadiah and Ahab, following the Lord is a head, heart, hands thing. Real discipleship, real following of Jesus walks. Being a follower of Jesus involves more than knowing stuff about him. Have a look at Obadiah. He knows the cost. He's weighted up. And Luke's Gospel in Luke 14 says we should do the same when it comes to following Jesus. No one builds a tower and halfway through decides they don't have the money to finish it. You weigh up the cost beforehand. If you want to know what following Jesus will involve, First, you need to know where he's going and secondly, you need to know who you are following and I think this is of great comfort. You see it there in Luke 9, Jesus says, follow me, follow me. Jesus offers himself as a companion for that road. One of my absolute favourite things about being a dad so far uh, in three years uh, is only just coming to play in the last sort of six months or so. Finn's got to the stage where he just wants to be everywhere that I am. Doesn't matter where I'm going, doesn't even know whether he doesn't know where I'm going, he's just convinced I want to go where Daddy's going. If I'm taking the bin out, oh, Finn will go too. If I'm going to the bathroom, Finn will go too. And like, no. Anywhere he wants to go. It's just great. And, you know, at the end of a day where you've had a, a shocker day and here's this guy who just wants to be with you. It's amazing. I want to go with Daddy. Well, the Bible says when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to our Lord, we should be exactly the same. I want to be with him. Wherever he's going, come what may, I want to be with him. Let me give you a bunch of reasons why the Bible says that. You want to follow Jesus because he knows you at your very worst and yet has forgiven you totally and forever. You want to be with Jesus because he loves you more passionately than you could possibly imagine. You want to be with Jesus because he knows how to fix that which is broken in us even before we know it. You want to follow Jesus because only he can bring real 
and lasting joy. Only he can sustain you for he has made you fearfully and wonderfully he has made you. You want to be with Jesus because only he alone can carry your burdens and give you rest. He alone will always hear you when you cry for help and he alone can actually do something about it. He will always be faithful, always just, always there. He's the king. Jesus says, follow me. It won't be easy, but it will be good. And here's the nub of it. If you are sure God is telling the truth, if you are sure his word can be trusted, then it's a no-brainer, isn't it? It's worth risking it all. Have you ever played musical chairs? used to play that at uh, kids' parties. I don't know whether they play it still, but simple game. There's always one too few chairs uh, for the amount of kids running around. Eventually you're left with two kids and one chair. It's worth being with Jesus on the road to the cross because he's the one you want to be with when the music stops. He's the only safe place to be at the end. I remember when I visited uh, my grandpa I was talking about earlier. Uh, Before I left we prayed together and I've never seen a man pray more passionately than he did that day. Now I don't know where my grandpa stands with God but uh, he wanted to pray the Lord's Prayer and he gripped my hand so tight I thought it was going to break. He was convinced this is what he needed to do. He was afraid but he knew this is where to go. And the Bible says the same to us here. Luke 9 asks, are you with Obadiah? Do you follow Jesus with your heart or has something else got it? He's where you want to be at the end. You want to say, I want to be with him because there is coming a day when he will stand before his father and he will say of you, he's with me. How good is that moment? Jesus will stand before his father and he will say, Andrew Reese, he's with me. Luke 9 asks, are you with him? Or has something else got your trust, your passion, comfort, pleasure, wealth, respect, reputation, home, family? It can be lots of things, can't it? The Bible says allegiance to Jesus is absolute and all other loyalties relative. Do you want Christ above all? Do you want to follow him more than anything? Discipleship is wholehearted, or it's non-existent. You can't follow Jesus Christ and always be looking back. Why risk it? Why trust the Lord? Why obey his command to follow? Well, simple. Same as the widow, same as the answer given to Obadiah in verse 15. There's that word again, sure. Because this bet is a sure thing. Because the Lord's word is true. In a world where nothing is sure, God says, my promise My word, my ways are trustworthy and true. So let me encourage you to trust them with every fibre of your being and take that trust for a walk into your homes, your workplaces, your social circles. Come what may, God's way is sure. To not trust him is a foolish man's bet. Let's pray.